Our speaker for the hour is Corey Sawyers. Corey is the minister at the Martin Church of Christ. He's also a, an instructor here at Bear Valley and an admissions advisor for us. He began preaching at the age of 15 and he's been in full-time ministry since 1998. And I need to tell you that when men come to school that have been preaching for a period of time, it can go one of two ways. When Corey came here, he'd been preaching for quite a while. And one of the ways that sometimes can go is, I know what you guys are saying, but I have studied that and I don't know that I agree with you. Or it can be that you are willing to open your mind and heart to maybe something that you didn't understand before and say, maybe I had this wrong, or maybe I just didn't know it as closely. Corey has always told a story about his first week at the Bear Valley Bible Institute. He went home and told Melody, I know nothing about the Bible. <laughs> and she said, of course you do. You've been preaching for 20 years. And he said, no, you don't understand. I know nothing about the Bible. But he did know a lot about the Bible. But the difference is he has a learner's heart. He has a heart that was willing to be taught. And as a matter of fact, Dan Owen's favorite joke in class was, Corey, are you ready to shred another dozen old sermons that you used to preach? <laughs> the other thing that I enjoy about Corey, he's one of my best friends in the world, is he taught me a new language. And <laughs> wait, watch, it's good. He's not the last pee out of the dish today because he's not the last one. He's the second to the last pee out of the dish, right? See? <laughs> You're in for a feast. And trust me, it's going to be Larrapin. <laughs> Corey, come. my microphone on so I can properly address all that false doctrine he just gave. <laughs> when I introduced Wes this morning, I talked about how that Wes and, and Michael are my two best friends. And with friends like that, well, never mind. Uh, bless, heart. bless my heart. That's right. <laughs> I should tell you, first of all, what Michael said earlier, there is another session that you should have gone to rather than this one. And if you don't believe those words, he just spent 10 minutes telling you about how bad a preacher I used to be. So um, you're fixing to find out. Um, I, I never set out to be a preacher. Uh, and when you hear me preach tonight, if you've never heard me preach before, you'll say, I know why. Um, but God just kept opening doors. And, uh, and as much as I loved serving and studying and preaching before I came to Bear Valley, I learned how to, I brought this up here, this is the way I started preparing for the manuscript and sermon for tonight. If you'd have given me this back in 2012, I'd have said, why did you color all over that paper, Michael? But if you want to learn how to study, please talk to Tyler or me and let us tell you about the best two years that you can spend in your life being a part of this congregation. And I'm going to talk more about that later on. But it's, it's funny because I was born and raised in West Tennessee. We're, I'm preaching in a congregation now that's literally eight miles from where I grew up and 12 miles from where Melody grew up. It's home. And when we walked in the other day in the office when we first got to town, Denny said, welcome home. 
and I felt like I was home. Whether I'm there or here. And, and you can make those parallels because, you know, anywhere with Jesus is home and anywhere where you got brethren is home. But, but I have two homes. And, and I love being here. And I love this congregation. And I love this Bible Institute so much. And I'm so grateful for all that, that you've given me. It's been hard for me to be prideful, Michael. When I, I sit around and listen to a Wayne Berger lesson or a Denny Petrillo lesson or a Michael Hyatt lesson, and I think, ooh, I've got a ways to go on that. We're studying, I hope you open your Bibles, to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Um, there's a story told about a preacher that was at a lectureship, and a, uh, a friend of his came up, and, and this is a true story. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying the name to protect the innocent, but... A friend of his came up and said, are you going home early or are you staying to the bitter end? He was the last speaker of the lectureship. So he said, I am the bitter end. <laughs> well, I'm the bitter end of the text and Joe Wells, who will follow me, will be the bitter, bitter end of the lectureship. But we'll try our best to be better than bitter and, and uh, do a good service to the lessons that's been assigned us. And the assignment that I have this evening is the last section of Scripture in 1 Corinthians. And whenever, two years ago now, we were planning what we were going to do last year and wound up being this year, then he passed around the, the topics and the, the texts and asked if anyone had a preference, then let him know. And I went into his office and I told him, I said, usually when you get to Sunday night, I know you typically like to have a bigger name guy that will draw an audience. And so it's okay if you don't want me to have this section, but I really would like the last section. And he said, why? And I said, because my favorite verse in 1 Corinthians is in this section. One of my favorite verses in the New Testament is in this section. And I'll explain what it is later. But the other reason that I wanted this text is because one of my favorite things to study has always been the last section in a book. And particularly, the last section in a New Testament letter. And part of the reason why is because we observe the Passover with it so many times. You know, we just rush right through it. But the ends of works can be very important. You know, uh, just as Tiny Tim said, God bless us, everyone. It's not just the last line of Dickens' classic, A Christmas Carol. It kind of sums up the whole idea of the book, how that uh, one man's change of heart can affect so many people. And, and every work that you think about, be it a song or, or a book or a poem or a movie or a television show, whatever it is, a good conclusion should do that. It should wrap up everything that's been said. It should remind you of key ideas throughout that, that work. And, and you see that over and over again in Gettysburg's address, uh, Gettysburg Address by Abraham Lincoln. The very last line when he talks about this government of the people, by the people, and for the people. How many times have you heard that line? But do you realize if you read the Gettysburg Address how well it wraps up everything that Lincoln was trying to say to a divided nation that day? When you think about, like, for example, the end of Casablanca, whenever Humphrey Bogart says, Lewis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. And, and what a great way to wrap up that movie it was. Even, even the childhood classic Charlotte's Web, the way the last line reads, it's not often that someone comes along who is a true friend and a good writer. Charlotte was both. Isn't that what Charlotte's Web is all about? That's what a good conclusion should do, whether it's a research paper that you're writing students, a bulletin article, a sermon, a novel, a television show, whatever. But particularly when we're talking about biblical things, spiritual things, that conclusion also ought to have 
a, an application. It ought, to, it ought to remind you of the main points that you've been trying to get across so that they remember. It ought to, to give them a way to take those main points and put it in their lives to make it real everyday life. You know, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16 is a passage that we like to throw around a lot. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. And then we will, in our commentaries, in our Bible classes, in our sermons, we'll get to the last section of a New Testament book, and we'll say, and Paul just wraps up and says goodbye here. But guess what? All Scripture includes the last section of each book. And all of those last sections are not only God-breathed, but they're very profitable. And so it's important for us to study them and important for us to know them. You think about all the things that we see in New Testament books in the very last section. The Great Commission, Jesus' Ascension, lists of all sorts of imperatives and encouragements. Even times when you have like in the book of Romans where he's giving these salutations to all of these different people. If you go back and you look and see what the, the theme, what he's trying to get across in Romans is. And then you, you start saying, well, what kind of name is that? And what, then you realize he's doing more than just saying bye, I'll see you later, right? There's power in these words. There's profitability in these words. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, we have a great example of that because what you see in 1 Corinthians 16 verses 5 through 24 is not only the book in a nutshell, here's another one for you, Michael, but also the church in a nutshell. Now, that's not a southernism, by the way. In fact, in a nutshell is an idiom that, that actually the first recorded occurrence we have was from 77 AD. Pliny the Elder wrote that. And it was used to talk about something that actually happened. And over the course of time, we've used in a nutshell to say, this is when someone is trying to describe something without any extra material. The bare bones of what he's trying to get across. And that's what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 5 through 24. And he's telling this congregation, this church that has gotten so, so, so wayward, so off track of what it should be, he's trying to show them this again is what I've been writing for 15 plus chapters. This is the church that I want you to be in a nutshell. This is what God wants you to be in a nutshell. This is what God demands you be in a nutshell. And he does that through three different areas. And in fact, I'll tell you right now, that there's more connections of what we're going to talk about throughout this book to this section than I have time to tell about in the next 31 minutes. But in the manuscript, you'll find a lot more in the book. I'll also tell you, preachers, that if you're going to preach this section, if I were you, I would divide it up and preach a series of three lessons because there's that much meat in these few verses. So let's think about them for just a few minutes. First of all, I want you to remember, if you don't remember anything else, this idea. We've been talking about all weekend about grasping the power of God. Well, we can't grasp the power of God until we grasp God's plan for the church. So the world must see us be the church. Undoubtedly, the people at Corinth had heard the church at Corinth preach and teach certain things. They, they knew of their practices that they believed in or thought about or taught about or whatever. But the problem was, was that the way they lived didn't match up with what the church ought to be. And that's one of the things that, that he points to is the fact that all those people around you in your community are looking at you and they're saying, you know what they're saying and what they're living is not, not matching up. In fact, we're living a lot more morally than they are. 
But the world needs to see us be the church. So first of all, notice in the first few verses of this section, you'll notice the work of the church in a nutshell in verses 5 through 11. And we see the work of the church in a nutshell by the repetition of two different words that are used in this, this part of our, our text we're looking at tonight. First of all, in verse 5, he says that I'm going to visit you when I'm passing through Macedonia. Macedonia was an area that was north of Achaia where Corinth was. For I intend to pass through Macedonia. He's talking about his third missionary journey is what he's talking about. And he says, perhaps I'll stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help. Highlighted in orange, here's our first word. Help me on my journey. It's a different English word, but it's the same word repeated here. Wherever I go. In fact, this word is a word that can be used in two different ways. It can be used to talk about assisting someone that's going on a journey. That's why he says, you can help me. You can assist me on this third missionary journey. It can also be used on a journey or a trip that you send one on for a communicative purpose. And, of course, Paul's purpose is to spread the good news about Jesus. And so, both of the ways it can be used, it's used here. Talking about the work of the church. If you jump on down to verses 10 and 11, he's talking to, about Timothy. And he says, when Timothy gets there, let no one despise him. In fact, he says, help him. He doesn't just say it. By the way, I, I've got this marked up like I have in my Bible. When I see an imperative or a command, there's a blue box with an IMP above it. So this isn't a suggestion to help Timothy. It's not just a good idea to help Timothy. It's a command to be involved in this communicative trip that he's going to be involved in. In fact, earlier in the book, in chapter 4 and verse 17, he says, I sent Timothy to you so that you would, he could remind you of all the ways that Paul was working, wherever he was, how that he was, <coughs> excuse me, how that he was spreading the gospel of Christ, how that he was ministering to those in need. And, and Timothy was doing the same way. In chapter 16, verse 3, that Timothy, uh, Keith, Timothy, Keith, I think of you like my Timothy. No, like Keith just talked about, we're going to send those guys to Jerusalem with the money that you've collected for those needy saints. Same word, same idea. Sending with a mission. See, that's the work of the church. The work of the church is either to be involved in communicating the message of Jesus Christ to all those in the world that need to, to know about Him, or it's being involved in helping those who are bringing that message to all the world. And you see that also with that second word that he repeats in this particular section, highlighted in yellow on the screen. He says, for a wide door of effective work has opened to me. This is a, a word, a Greek word that means work. So they translated it as work. So good job, right? We like to throw around our Greek knowledge sometimes as preachers because it makes us sound really nice. Anyway, so he's, this effective work is open for me in, in Ephesus that he's working on. And he says, when Timothy comes to see you, he, he talks about the work that Timothy does. He, it's actually the same word used twice. He uses it twice for emphasis by saying he's doing the work of the Lord. Literally, it's, he's working the work of the Lord. To emphasize the fact that he's doing God's work just like I, Paul, am doing God's work. Well, what is that work? It's spreading the gospel of Jesus to all those who are in need of it. It's a word that he uses a lot in this, in this uh, book. He talks about them being God's fellow workers in chapter 3. 
He talks about his own work. He talks about the Corinthians' work and how it's going to be put under a microscope. He talks about how poorly they're doing the work. See, the church at Corinth was really busy. And sometimes we confuse a busy church with a church that's doing the work of the Lord. Sometimes we'll say because that church has a lot of programs, it has a lot of activities, there's a lot of things going on around the building, there's a lot of stuff in the bulletin, the announcements are long because there's so much going on. That's a church that's really working. In a church maybe that doesn't have all those programs and activities, we're saying that, that you know, they're probably not doing much work there. Don't confuse being busy with doing the work of the Lord. It's high time we realize that it's not enough just to provide fellowship opportunities. And listen, nobody loves fellowship opportunities and especially fellowship meals more than I do. But the work of the church, as Paul lays out in a nutshell, involves our spreading the gospel of Jesus. It involves our, our helping those that are spreading the gospel of Jesus. And, and I really feel like I'm, I'm singing to the choir here because this is a, a group tonight that should really get that. Because a lot of you that are here are members of the Bear Valley Church of Christ. Do you realize what an impact you're having on the world? Do you realize what an impact you're having in the kingdom? You don't have to take my word for it. You just come travel along with Tyler or me or Denny or somewhere. And everywhere we go, we have people saying, man, our church was a mess until we got a Bear Valley preacher and things have been going so well the last seven years. Or we really were having trouble with this or that or whatever. And then we hired a Bear Valley youth minister or a Bear Valley preacher. And, and man, it's just been great. Y'all are doing such a good work there. Keep it up. I don't know how many times I have guys call me and they'll say, hey, we're fixing to hire a youth minister or we're fixing to hire a preacher. Do you know a Bear Valley graduate that's looking for a job? Even people that say, do you realize what an impact Bear Valley's having on the church worldwide? Do you realize what an impact you're having on our congregation? Do you realize what you, impact you've had in my life? How cool is it going to be one day when we're in eternity together? And you have someone that right now you can't talk to because they speak a different language. But in that day, we'll be speaking the same language. And as you get to know each other, they find out you remember the Bear Valley Church of Christ. And they say, wow, thank you so much. It was one of your graduates that taught me the gospel. I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. Because I can tell you right now, I wouldn't be here if it weren't for you. And there's a lot of guys in here that are training right now. You're the one that, you don't need to think of this as an academic exercise. You don't need to think about this as, what can I get by to, to just graduate? What can I do to just get my diploma? John Arvin, a former graduate of ours that many of you know very well, said one time in a chapel talk, we're not here to get a cap and a gown. We're here to get a robe and a crown. That's your job. And then to help as many people as you can go with you. That's the work of the church. Have you ever gone to like one of the big box stores, Home Depot or, or Lowe's, and you're walking, if you're like me, I'm sure it's not, because, even though John Moore called me an old preacher earlier, I'm sure it's not because of my age. But you're walking around and, and you're having to do like this to see what, what color of caulk is it that I'm buying, you know. Or sometimes I buy it and I get home and I open up the bag. That's not what I wanted. 
because it's so dark in there. And then suddenly you round the corner and you get in this aisle that it feels like you've just walked to the surface of the sun. Because every light in the entire building is on that one aisle. They've got ceiling fan lights, they've got bedstand lights, they've got uh, end table lights, they've got chandeliers, they've got you name it, they've got all the lights and you walk in and you have to put your sunglasses on that one aisle. Well, I think about that and I think about our congregations and our youth groups and evangelism and how much we like collecting together as lights. And that's okay. Because we need that, that energizing uh, time together from time to time. But God doesn't want us to be the lamp owl at Lowe's. He wants us to go out into a world of darkness and shed the light of Jesus to everyone. And we need to be involved in the work of the church either by going or helping people go. T uh, Michael did a, a graphic a few years back that was posted on social media and whatever of this very pulpit area. And over the top of it, it said, fill one or fund one. That's what he's saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. The work of the church is to fill one or to fund one. That's the work of the church in a nutshell. And the world needs to see us be that kind of working church. Secondly, if you'll notice in verses 12 through 16, we see the church unity in a nutshell. The unity of the church in a nutshell. I don't know how many speakers, you go back two years ago when we did the first half of 1 Corinthians, how many speakers this year when we've done the second half of 1 Corinthians, I don't know how many speakers that we've heard say something to this effect. Corinth was a divided church. If you haven't learned anything, you've probably learned that Corinth was a divided church, which is almost as oxymoronic, if that's a word, as a civil war. You can't have a civil war. And you know what Paul tells them in a nutshell? You can't have a divided church. So he talks about unity in a nutshell. And the way he does this, if you're paying close attention to the text, is he does so with bookends and a string of five imperatives. Now for those of you that don't know, a bookend is when he talks about something in this verse, and a few verses down he talks about that same thing. And in between, guess what he's talking about? That very same thing. The, the book ends here in verse 12 and really verses 15 and 16. The repeated word is in verse 15, but the thought is 15 and 16. And it's a, a petition verb. Uh, Dan mentioned the other night this idea that it's in chapter 1, it's in chapter 4, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But it, the, the, the petition verbs is the way that they would really draw attention. You've got to get this. It's the highlighting, bold in all caps and whatnot. It's, it's you really need to pay attention to this. So what he does in verse 12 is he's strongly urged, is the way the ESV puts it. Your translation may say beseech or begged or, or implored or something of that nature. It's a begging word. We're begging Apollos to do something. And then in verse 15 and 16, he's begging these brothers at Corinth to do something. So let's look and see what he's talking about here, because it's a word that he's used throughout the text. Now, again, Dan mentioned the other night that it's used in chapter 1 and chapter 4 directly towards the church at Corinth when he's begging, urging, uh, um, imploring, whatever your translation might say, them to do something. It's the same Greek word that's used two other times in chapter 4 and in chapter 14 to... Uh, indirectly beg them. He's, he's not directly begging them, but he's showing them something by begging in another way. 
But you know what all three of these different sections, these four verses have in common, is that they, every one, are about unity. And that's what he's talking about in our section over here in chapter 16, between these bookends. In verse 12, what he's urging is for Apollos to come to Corinth. And Apollos didn't want to come to Corinth. Which is strange because Apollos has been mentioned a bunch in the book of 1 Corinthians. And yet now Apollos doesn't want to go to Corinth. text doesn't tell us why. It could be, this is a little Cory 3.16, but it could be that maybe he's, he doesn't want to go there because he knows one of the things they've divided over is over personalities and leaders and, and popularity contests. And, and Apollos says, I don't want to go. It's no fault of Apollos's, by the way, if he was brought up in that conversation. But I don't want to go and add to that problem. I don't want to be a, a, a cause of disunity. There's a great lesson for us right there. That we do everything to make sure we're not the cause of disunity. And then if you look down in verse 16 and 15, that second time that this word is used, what he's doing is, I'm urging you brothers that you know the household of Stephanus. He he, this is the, uh, the, back in chapter 1, he talked about them. These are the first uh, converts, he says, in Achaia. Corinth is the capital of Achaia. And he says, I'm, I'm urging you to be subject to them, he says in verse 16. Eighteen different times in the book of 1 Corinthians, he uses a subjection word. Not the same word, but a bunch of different subjection words. Uh, Aaron Gallagher talked about the other day, I don't know if Aaron's up here or not, but Aaron Gallagher talked about the other day about the fact that pride was at the, the root of their disunity. And that's why 18 times he's reminded them, you need to be in subjection to one another. Because if you can get a congregation to start thinking more highly of others than themselves, putting others' needs before their, their self, thinking more of others' opinions or desires or needs or wants or wishes than themselves. If everybody's doing that, you're going to have a united congregation for sure. And so he says, I want you to be subject to these guys because they've devoted, that's one of the subjection words, they've subjected themselves to the point that they are serving the saints. And the word for serving there is a word that we sometimes transliterate as deacon we translate it as minister or ministry. This is a service word. They have subjected themselves to the role of a servant. Now, are you with me still? Do you understand what he's telling us to do here? I want you to pay attention. I want you to subject yourself. I want you to, to really notice and follow the example of these people that have subjected themselves to the point of being a servant. That's not the way we usually do things today, is it? But he's saying that's what they, he wants them to do. In fact, he calls them fellow workers. That's the same word that we looked at in our first point. But he also calls them a laborer. And the idea behind a laborer is one that just works himself till he's just flat give out. He is dog tired. And you all, whether you work in a hospital or on a road crew or in a restaurant or a church or wherever you're at, you know there's a difference in that, right? There's people that work, and then there's people that labor till they they're just completely give out. They not only are working for the cause of Christ, they're not only working for unity, but they're giving everything they have, they're putting into being united. Do we have that same sense of urgency about unity. 
And then you got these imperatives in between the two bookends. And we'll often kind of pull these out and talk about any sin that we need to get rid of in our lives and how they're effective for that. But in context, he's talking about the sin of disunity. So think about how they're used, what they mean. He says, first of all, I'm commanding you to be watchful. And the idea here is, is someone that's, that's sitting up on the, the wall and he's looking out across the horizon, looking for someone that's going to pose a threat. Are we that in tune to looking for anything that might harm our unity? I mean, we're very watchful. Somebody, I guarantee you, if I preach false doctrine right now, there'd be eight people tackle me and four more jump up here to tell you what the truth is. But how, how vigilant are we watching out for things that would cause disunity? He says, stand firm. And the idea here is to kind of hold your ground. This is like the offensive lineman that's not going to let you get to his quarterback. This is the basketball player that's going to take a charge, standing his ground. This is the, in those days, the hand-to-hand combatant that's, that you're, I'm going to dig my heels in and you're not. This is Gandalf, Michael, sticking his pole in the bridge in front of the fiery dragon and saying, you shall not pass. Unity is going to be back here. Disunity, you're not getting to us. I'm going to stand firm. And he tells us what to stand firm in, the faith. We need to stand firm. We need to stand our ground on what the Bible says, but only what the Bible says. Most of the time, what we want to dig our heels in is my opinions, my thoughts, my desires, the way I think it ought to be, especially as men, leaders, elders, preachers, guys in charge. And he says what you really need to dig your heels in on is unity. And then he says, act like men, which literally is just be courageous. And we say, yeah, I can do that. I can be courageous. And I'll stand up for the truth, and I'll stand up for the, the, uh, the Word of God, and I'll whatever. But the courage that we really need, probably more than anything else, because we lack it so much, is the courage to say, I was wrong. The courage to say, will you forgive me? The courage to say, I will forgive you. The courage to say, that's behind us, and brother, we're walking arm in arm from now on. Can you man up and do what it takes to cause unity. And then he says to be strong, which can be used to talk about being strong physically or mentally. I think it's the latter here. But it's having that mental fortitude of, I'm going to be so aware. I'm going to be so in tune. I'm going to be so focused in on making sure that as much as I can influence it, I'm going to be the one that helps us shore up our unity. That nothing is going to crumble that foundation. Now, by the way, we're fixing to get to my favorite verse in 1 Corinthians. And it's my favorite verse because we've just got through talking about four commands that are mighty commands, that are manly commands, that are military words. These, you can almost hear Tim the Toolman Taylor in the background going, ha, 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 ha. And there's no way that we would put number five imperative after these manly strong words like Paul does, but notice what the fifth imperative is. Let all that you do be done in love. You know, it takes a real man to show love. It takes a real man to put others before themselves. It takes a real man to not demand his way, but what's best for others. 
Real men do all that they can in love. And this is our agape love. It's that self-sacrificing love. It's that putting others before self kind of love. See, in this section with these two bookends and, and with this list of these imperatives, he's hammering home that the church in a nutshell is one that has unity. That we're all in this together. That we are on the same team. Even when we may have differences of opinions or ideas or whatever, we're not letting nothing come between us. Sometimes when you're at lectureships like this, I'll, I'll stand out there in the foyer and I'll hear uh, some of my very distinguished brethren preachers and they'll, they'll be standing around they'll say, uh, have you read uh, Dr. So-and-so's book? And the other one will say, uh, which one are you talking about? And they'll say, well, Baba doo Baba. In that book, he says, and the other one's like, oh, yes, but I like, I don't quote those books because I'm not that smart. I like to quote Dr. Seuss books because that's more <laughs> on my left, really and truly. Preachers, if you're looking for illustrations, start reading Dr. Seuss if you hadn't already. In the Butter Battle book was a book that Dr. Seuss wrote, kind of his funny way to show how against he was the nuclear arms race. And whatever your opinion about nuclear arms is, is irrelevant to this conversation. But the point of the book, what's going on in the book is, is that you've got people that come become so self-inflated and so insistent upon their opinion being the way and the only way is that they will literally make a cosmic issue about anything, including how to put butter on bread. And you're saying, well, that's just silly, Dr. Seuss. And it is. But how silly are we when we let things as irrelevant as that divide brothers and sisters in Christ? See, in a nutshell, he's saying the church needs to be acting like the church. The world needs to see you be the church by the unity that you have. And then finally, number three, from verses 17 and 20 through 24, we see the love of the church in a nutshell. And what he does in this section is he's going to repeat a word, and then he's going to give us a list of three imperatives to point us back to the idea of love that he's been hammering on the entire letter, basically. And so you think about this word that he uses. If you're noticing repeated ideas in verses 19 and 20, you see this idea of greetings used twice. In verse 21, you see the same word used once. And the idea behind this word is to have hospitable recognition someone, to greet someone, to welcome someone, to help in some way honor someone or lift someone up or show a kindness to someone. And the idea behind it is love. And I'll, I'll show that more in just a minute. See, what he's wanting you to understand, church, is that if you're going to be the church that you ought to be, you're going to have to recognize each other and lift each other up and love each other. And so then you have these commands that he gives. Uh, begin, begin, oh, wait, let me go back here. There we go. You get these commands that are mixed in here. And we'll get to those three commands in just a minute. But, but notice how the love is distributed. You've got the congregation in Asia, the congregation in Aquila and Priscilla's house. And they love this congregation, and they show that love. You've got the individuals that are there, and you've got Paul there, even in his own handwriting, showing love to these people. Individuals love congregations, and they show that love. 
And then he gives that command, which is the second. So let's, let's back up a verse, and we'll notice the first of the command. Verse 18, he says, Give recognition to such people. What people? The people that refreshed my spirit. He's going to talk about in 2 Corinthians how they refreshed Titus' spirit. In Philemon, he talks about how that Philemon had refreshed his spirit, and he's asking him to again refresh his spirit. These are people that have shown love. There are people that, that House of Stephanus we talked about earlier that, that get what the, the, the love of the church ought to be like. And, and in fact, that makes perfect sense because we ought to recognize those. Remember what he said back in the end of chapter 12 and chapter 13 and chapter 14? That the most desirable gift you can have is love. Don't recognize the people that, that say, look how important I am, look how talented I am. You recognize the people that show love. That's why, by the way, we gave a standing ovation the other night to a man. We gave recognition to Wayne Nelson. Doesn't he show love? That's the kind of people he's saying, Corinth, you need to notice. You need to pay attention and follow their example. And then the second imperative that he gives is this idea of greeting one another with a holy kiss. And boy, we make a big deal out of this one, don't we? Because there are some people that are so against it. There are some people. Wes Altry can't wait till I get to Denver to give him a holy kiss. I mean, a beam comes over his face, you know. But if you'll notice, the imperative is not the kiss. The imperative is the greet. And in fact, there's a bunch in the manuscript of places that you can go to. But if you'll just remember Romans 16 and Colossians 4, there's a lot of different ways that he tells us we can greet one another. We can greet one another with a kiss. We can greet one another through writing. We can greet one another from afar. We can greet one another through someone else. But what he's really trying to get you to understand is you've got to greet. You've got to show love because that's what this holy kiss, it comes from that brotherly love kind of word. Sometimes we'll say, well, I have to love my brother. I don't have to like him. Yes, you do. You've got to love him with agape love and you're commanded to like him, to brotherly love him. Both. And then the third imperative is the most interesting one to me. Because when I'm, I'm going across here and I'm saying, anyone who has no love for the Lord, let him be a curse. And I'm thinking, that's kind of brutal. But he's not talking to people in the world. He's talking to people that claim to have a relationship with the Lord. And he says, if they don't love the Lord, let them be a curse. This is the same word that's used in Galatians about people that would teach different doctrines. And we'd say, yeah, they need to be out of here. Do we feel as strongly about people that don't show love? And when we think about loving the Lord, I, I'm looking at it and I'm saying, well, certainly this is agape love because after all, the Lord deserves and commands that we think more highly of Him than ourselves and give all to Him. But what's interesting is this is not the word agape that's the love word here. It's the same word that we saw back up in verse 20. This is the brotherly love for the Lord. And I thought, that's interesting. I wonder how many times he says that we should brotherly love the Lord in the New Testament from the book of Acts to Revelation. Guess how many times? Zero. I wonder how many times he says that we should brotherly love Christ or Jesus or the Son or the Messiah. Guess how many times? Zero. Only time in the New Testament he says that we should brotherly love the Lord. And I'm thinking, why would he say that? But ultimately, in fact, so much so that I'm calling, uh, texting Denny, have you ever noticed? And Denny said, yeah. He said, what does it mean? I said, I thought you were going to tell me. And Denny said, No. It's kind of like this is the ultimate test of what he's been writing throughout the whole book. We have found you lovable. You need to find each other lovable. And you can't claim that you love the Lord and not love his people. 
That's the love of the Lord in a nutshell that he's talking about here. You know, you guys especially, if you invited someone to your house for supper, and while you're eating, they, they talk bad about your wife's cooking, they talk bad about your wife's housekeeping, they talk badly about, about the way your wife looks, how long would it take you to grab them by the seat of the pants and show them out of your house? And yet, how many times do we gather at the Lord's table and hold ill feelings and say bad things about His bride? I'm going to tell you right now, you can't be my friend if you mistreat my wife. If you don't love Melody, don't think you're going to have a relationship with me. And if I feel that way, don't you know Jesus feels that way? That's the church in a nutshell. That's 1 Corinthians in a nutshell. And that's what's so important. So think about it. How involved are you in the work of the church? Are you preaching and teaching? Are you helping someone else? Fill one or fund one. How hard are you working for unity? Because it takes work and stamina and persistence. And how much are you showing genuine love for each other? How much genuine love are you showing for the Lord by the way that you treat each other? You know, last weekend was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And a lot of people talked about, where were you on 9-11? You remember where you were 20 years ago? Some of the students are saying, uh, nowhere. Um, <laughs> where were you at 9-11? What was going on? Do you remember how you felt? Well, last Sunday when I preached at Martin, I asked him, because it was 9-12, I said, do you remember 9-12? Do you remember the unity? This is... Uh, Newsweek from that following week, Tom Brokaw on uh, the September 19th, that's today's date, 20 years ago, led the, or ended the newscast by talking about how that God bless America had become the new national anthem. People that divided, people that were at each other's throat, people that didn't want God mentioned were suddenly united. Didn't take us long to get over that, did it? You think about how divided and how united that we, how, uh, uh, disunity, how much disunity there is in the church in the world today. Paul's parting admonitions for this congregation is, I want you to get the work of the church is spreading good news. I want you to get that the unity of the church is essential. I want you to get that the love of the church is absolutely necessary. And it's my parting admonition for you as well, in a world as divided as we are, imagine what the church of Corinth could have been. Imagine what we could be if we showed the love, the unity, and the good news that God demands. May God bless us.